Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. G'day, Alan. Hello, Darren. It's late afternoon on Thursday, the 4th of February today, and we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to begin with our good friends, New Zealand, and what can be said about their Trade Minister's advice to Canberra on how to handle relations with China. Next, we're in the early days of a military coup in Myanmar, and we'll ask what that means. Third, we'll look at a recent speech given by Chinese President Xi Jinping at Davos. And finally, we'll revisit our conversation last episode about fresh thinking in Australian foreign policy, but today through the lens of a new comprehensive strategic partnership with Malaysia. So first up, Australia's attention was drawn across the Tasman Sea last week when Kiwi Trade Minister Damien O'Connor gave a, a controversial TV interview. Now, the context here was Wellington having concluded an upgraded free trade agreement with Beijing, and the trade minister was quizzed about Australia-China relations and the chill, and specifically the idea that because New Zealand is the host of APEC this year, there might be an opportunity to bring Australia and China to the table together. Now, this possibility had been endorsed by the Kiwi Foreign Minister Mahuta back in December. Now, when he was asked about these issues, O'Connor said in the interview that New Zealand had a, quote, mature and honest relationship, and he emphasises honesty and frankness in his answer. And then he went on, and I quote here, I can't speak for Australia and the way it runs its diplomatic relationships, but clearly, if they were to follow us and show more respect, I guess a little more diplomacy from time to time, and be cautious with wording, then they too, hopefully, could be in a similar situation, end quote. Now, this quote did not go down well in Canberra, and later that day, O'Connor places a phone call to his Australian counterpart, Dan Tian, the Trade Minister here, and releases a statement saying, quote, the Australia-China relationship will always be a matter for China and Australia. Now, we don't know what was said on that phone call, but I think it's fair to assume that O'Connor was at least looking to clarify his comments and perhaps express some regret for saying them. But to his credit, Dan Tian kept his cool publicly and did not go on the counterattack. So Alan, bearing in mind your admiration for our previous trade minister, Simon Birmingham, and his, to quote you in a previous episode, control over words and tone, that was episode 64, can you offer your comment on, on these events? If there's one thing Australians hate, it's being lectured by New Zealanders. So you could see this one coming as soon as the newbie trade minister made his helpful suggestions. And the call he made to Canberra came very quickly thereafter, although presumably as soon as one of his seniors in the government, maybe Ardern, pointed out that although China is New Zealand's biggest trade partner, the Australian economic relationship is perpetually critical. So that was inevitable. And Dan Tian seems to have handled it effectively in a Birmingham-esque way, I might say. Mm, well, that is promising. So even if we put O'Connor's 
clumsy attempts to one side. Do you think Australia has something to learn from New Zealand and how it handles its relationship with Beijing? I mean, and, and could the Kiwis play some kind of mediating role as has been mooted? No, I don't think we need either Wellington or Washington or anyone else to mediate for us in Beijing. We need to deal with the relationship ourselves. But do we have something to learn? I think so. And that is the advantage of careful, thoughtful diplomacy. Because, you know, when, when you think about it, New Zealand's policy decisions on issues like 5G and foreign interference, Hong Kong, are not notably different from ours, but they mm. have avoided the sort of flaming and trolling and mixed messages that have marked noises from Australia. I understand there was frothing indignation in the Twitter sphere over his remarks about respect, which were widely interpreted to mean groveling subservience. But there is a point here. Mutual respect is at the core of any effective diplomatic relationship. And you really just have to think back to you know, last couple of years and the exquisite efforts the Australian government made to avoid criticism of Donald Trump to, to see that. We should certainly require respect from Beijing and agreement to speak to our ministers would be an excellent place for them to start. Mm. But we, we also do need to examine our own behaviour. I'm, I'm not talking about the on-the-record remarks of the PM and others, which are fine, but about sort of silence in the face of some of the cruder political attacks on China from within their own ranks and also some of the things not said. And you might point to some of the appointments to the advisory board of the much-trumpeted Foundation for Australia-China Relations as well. But what about you? What were your takeaways? I think we can all agree it was poor diplomacy by the Kiwi Trade Minister. A simple heuristic for me in a case like this is, did you make one capital happy and the other one upset? And if so, was that your intention? I think we can be fairly confident that Beijing was pleased by the comments and Canberra obviously was not. And I can't see how that outcome really serves New Zealand's interests. I think also in a vacuum, boiling down a dispute to simply show a little more respect is problematic, not only because it's close to PRC talking points on the issue, but more importantly, because it implies that the cause of the tensions is one-sided. If only the recalcitrant Australia cleaned up its act, showed more respect, then things would be fine. And I don't think any reasonable observer would conclude that this is a black and white issue where only one side is the antagonist. Yeah, I, agree. I certainly agree with that. Yeah, but, but stepping back, you know, I put my academic hat on and asked myself, you know, what factors explain the differences in the bilateral relationships? I think you could write a very good academic paper on this question, and I don't think it comes down simply to the conduct of diplomacy, although I do agree that matters. You know, if you return to the O'Connor interview, the words he uttered immediately after that inflammatory quote were telling when he said, quote, we have the benefit of being a small country, end quote. And Foreign Minister Mahuta said exactly the same thing in an interview with Laura Tingle on the 7.30 report in Australia. She said, quote, we are a small country in the bottom of the Pacific and mindful of our size, end quote. And I think there's a lot to that. New Zealand's smaller size and its even more remote location mean that it has a narrower range of interests and some different interests, which lead to the simple explanation that it has fewer conflicts of interest with China and that means a better overall relationship. 
But it's true, Alan, as you say, on many of the big issues, Australian and New Zealand policy is not that different. Huawei and 5G, public concern from domestic security agencies about foreign influence, you know, fairly consistent criticism on, on Hong Kong and human rights, albeit not always jointly. But Australia is just is more forward-leaning. You know, you've got our US alliance relationship. You've got our participation in the Quad, our South China Sea position, and a, a vigorous promotion of a particular vision of international order. I think what it gets down to is we in Australia, we want to place ourselves in the centre of the Indo-Pacific. We, we love that idea. Mm-hmm. And we will loudly proclaim it to anyone who will listen <laughs> that we are there. But as a result of wanting to be so prominent, we see the strategic environment as more threatening and we have a wider scope of interest that we want to protect. And you know, if I were the Kiwis, I would be quite happy just being tucked away down there at the bottom of the Pacific, as Prime Minister Mahuta said. Now, my second point on this is, is really a question because I'm not familiar with the strategic debates inside New Zealand, especially regarding China. I mean, I know of the work of people like Robert Eisen and Anne-Marie Brady, but I'm wondering if there is nearly as much of a, a thick, contested discourse in New Zealand as there is here. You know, I mean, I'm actually doing some research at the moment with a co-author on Europe and looking at the discourse on China inside countries like Italy and Spain during the COVID outbreak and mass diplomacy. And it's remarkable how much less is said generally about China and the issues related to China inside some European countries compared to Australia. Now, on this podcast, Alan, you and I have talked about Australia's agency all the time and we've disagreed about how much agency Australia has. But I do think that the vim and vigour, to be optimistic about it anyway, in our debate in Australia is premised on the fact that we do have agency to shape our external environment. And perhaps also that means that there are more obnoxious and at times toxic voices that contribute to that debate that you wish, Alan, our leadership would tamp down more often. And I just don't know whether the New Zealand leadership faces these kinds of voices nearly as regularly and has such a thick discourse that it's dealing with. You know, if if you do have a smaller, more remote country that believes it has less agency, you know, you would expect it to be in others' faces less often as it goes about its business. And maybe overall then, New Zealand is just less in Beijing's vision. It's less prominent. It gets less attention. But a final point, Alan, and I'll ask you to respond to all of this, but this in particular, you know, aren't we just a little bit too condescending towards New Zealand? I mean, right now I'm thinking about Prime Minister Morrison's reaction to the very public request, heartfelt request, a plea even from Prime Minister Ardern regarding the deportation of Kiwi citizens who have no connection to New Zealand. But I'm sure this goes back much further. I mean, can I give you the last word on this issue? Yeah, I I think we are too condescending and the New Zealanders can be too sensitive. So both things apply. It's always seemed to me that the biggest difference between Australia and New Zealand, two countries which are on the surface at least very similar, is that Australia feels economically confident but strategically vulnerable, while New Zealand feels strategically confident but economically vulnerable. Mm. And that's not surprising given our different geographic positions and economic endowments. But we, the two of us, are always better off when we put aside the petty stuff and work together. And I, I think we're going to have to relearn that because... In fact, these two countries, which think about themselves very much in sibling-type terms, are in fact growing more different and distinct with every passing year. That's certainly one of the things that 
impresses me every time I go to New Zealand. New Zealand thinks of itself as bicultural. Now Australia thinks of itself as multicultural. The structure of our economies on both sides of the Tasman is changing and the nature of our international engagement. Now that should actually make it more mutually valuable to work together because we have increasingly different uh, things to offer. Mm. Actually, I do have one more point. And it ties into an issue that I want to talk about a little bit later. To me, the most impressive element of Foreign Minister Mahuta's interview with Laura Tingle on 7.30 was when she was asked by Laura Tingle, are you concerned about China's BRI in the Pacific? And her response was, quote, I'm concerned about the Pacific not being used as a pawn. And then she focuses on the issues that really matter to Pacific countries, you know, COVID-19 in the short term, climate change in the long term. And I think this approach is 100% correct. You know, if you want influence over these countries, you need to elevate their concerns, make them as important to you as they are to them. And it's quite possible that on some level, I think the Kiwis probably are concerned about some aspects of China's influence in the region, but them worrying about this out loud is not going to be very helpful. It's not going to persuade Pacific countries to, you know, to share their interests because all that these Pacific countries will hear is a wealthy country deprioritizing what they care about most. So I thought that was very a very effective diplomatic approach. All right, well, let's move on to our second item. Earlier this week, the military in Myanmar seized power and declared a year-long state of emergency, detaining Aung San Suu Kyi, who is essentially the leader of the National League for Democracy Party, which had won recent elections back in November in a landslide, repeating its victory in 2015, in both cases where the party had claimed more than 80% of the seats on around 60 to 65% of the vote. The military has claimed that this election was fraudulent. Now, of course, military rule in Myanmar is not new. It was only in 2011 when a nominally civilian government was sworn in after decades of military rule. Now, Australian Foreign Minister Maurice Payne issued a statement stating that the government was deeply concerned, while the Biden administration has strongly condemned the takeover and threatened sanctions. Alan, only a few episodes ago, you discussed that your first posting as a diplomat was to Myanmar, back then also under a military dictatorship. So can I ask you just for an initial reaction to these events? Yeah, well, there's an old aphorism from the 18th century French philosopher and diplomat Joseph de Maistre to the effect that every country gets the government it deserves. Now, I don't think it's ever been really true, but it's always seemed to me to be particularly unfair to the Burmese, who are fantastic people, but who have suffered under military regimes that were simultaneously repressive and incompetent since 1962. They don't deserve the governments they've had. And as we've known for some time now, the West projected onto Aung San Suu Kyi its own romantic expectations, and it turned out that she was a Burman nationalist in the tradition of her father, Aung San, who was the assassinated independence leader, and a person who had strong controlling tendencies. So the problem for me, uh, well, the problem for Burma really, is that she was a fine martyr, but a very poor politician, unable or unwilling at least to convert her popularity among the people into a lasting change of governance. So my initial response is just one of great sadness for the Burmese themselves as they find themselves on this wheel again. 
And look, I was thinking about it because during the, the week, the annual democracy index from the Economist Intelligence Unit was released. I don't know if you mm. saw it. I did, yeah. But it showed the lowest global score for democracies since the index was established in 2006. About the only good news was actually in our region because Taiwan, Japan and South Korea were elevated to full democracies from their earlier status as flawed democracies, though that flawed democracy was where the US remained. And going back to the earlier discussion to further give the Kiwis reason for gloating, New Zealand at number four was ranked much higher as a democracy in the world than Australia, which was at equal ninth. Mm, mm, all the countries in that top echelon were very small, often more homogenous places. Yeah, Norway. The, the Icelands and the Norways yeah. of the world. Yeah. So I think there's an interesting conversation to be had there about whether this measure is appropriate across the, the diversity of, of different political sizes of political systems and, and, and their makeup, but still a very concerning finding. On Myanmar, for me, not being an expert at all on the country, you know, what interests me most is, is going to be how the world reacts to this event. The world feels like a different place now that Trump is gone. And dare I say that there feels more like possibility is in the air, like that, that things, you know, good things could be ahead, but equally, you know, a large amount of uncertainty. And so if it's true that we're not going to be returning to the days of US hegemony, and we think that Washington really does need a new approach, you know, to reflect the fact that it's operating from a position of, of, of diminished power, then I, I'm just grappling with what that looks like in a case like this. You know, we have a situation here where the values the United States wants to protect here, the preservation of a, a democratically elected government, elected, mind you, pursuant to a constitution that the military itself drafted, you know, is happening in a moment where Washington's moral authority on questions of democratic preservation is really diminished, as we've discussed at length on the podcast. And meanwhile, you've got a, a major geopolitical rival in China with its own interests that will often be at odds with America's. And so I'm just what do you do? And, and this is the idea of the thought bubble I had. Why not call up some of the leading ASEAN states? And I'm talking here about Indonesia, Singapore, maybe Vietnam, Malaysia, the Philippines, and say to them, guys, what do you need? You know, tell us what you would like us to do, and we'll you know, strongly consider doing it. ASEAN countries have, have been saying consistently in the recent years that they do want a more engaged United States but not on terms that are too confrontational. So why not let them lead here? Tell them you'll offer them your resources, your power, as prominently or as subtly as, as they want to assist in, in their leadership, in their effort. And if they decide that nothing should be done, then fine. You know, continue on with the criticisms, scale back cooperation as, as necessary, look for ways to impose costs on the, on the military for this behaviour. But I'm just... I'm not sure that Washington can be that ambitious at this point in time. And it seems, therefore, like a good place to develop a new approach or try out a new approach that is sensitive to these shifting power dynamics and the need to build coalitions to get things done. I mean, Alan, is, is that crazy? What do you think? I mean, whether it's on this issue or on others, what, what are you looking for in this sort of new world order to, to understand how regional order might sort of evolve in the, in the near term? I've been surprised that so many of the ASEANs have issued modest 
statements of concern about the coup because in the past, ASEAN's view of non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries has been pretty much the same as China's. And we saw that during the Rohingya crisis. Yeah, yeah. Stay stay quiet, don't cast the first stone. Mm. So going back to the US, what, what we're seeing might in fact reflect the first impact of the Biden administration in the region, because I'm pretty sure that if Trump was still in the White House, we wouldn't we wouldn't have seen yeah. this sort of yeah. thing. Despite that, though, ASEAN solidarity, which means you know going along with the lowest common denominator, is a prerequisite for ASEAN centrality, and that's the view we just heard Scott Morrison repeating at the press club last week. That, as he put it, ASEAN sits at the heart of Australia's vision for all the Indo-Pacific. So that desire to keep the organisation together for that central strategic purpose, as well as the fact that on the democracy front, Thailand and Vietnam and the Philippines and Cambodia can't exactly lecture anyone, uh, Mm. means they probably won't go too far. That means that the problem for Washington and for us as well is that we can't outsource our views on the value of democracy to Southeast Asians. We couldn't legitimately then complain about human rights problems in China or Russia. But on the other hand, and you alluded to this, and it's certainly been a factor in Australian foreign policy in the past with Myanmar or indeed Fiji after the coup, if you don't deal with the government in control, it will find other partners and players to work with. So here we are back with foreign policy and its role of balancing interests and values and managing differences. If you want simple answers, don't come looking for them around here, Darren, is my advice. (laughs) Alan, I'm, I'm fascinated by your statement that ASEAN solidarity is a prerequisite for ASEAN centrality. I mean, that's, that used to be true and clearly ASEAN states have trod very carefully in the past. But I wonder, if so much is changing in world politics, is that still going to be true? This is an open question, I think, for me, especially for those governments that are likely to have the greatest relative concern about the evolving regional order, especially Indonesia and Singapore, but also the Malaysias and the Philippines and the Vietnams, as I said earlier. Is the long-tenured principle of ASEAN centrality sustainable to protect their interests as relative power balances change and that famous solidarity is disrupted for example by close relations between beijing and individual asean states like cambodia so that's why i'm I'm just fascinated or really wish the us could try to empower some of these key asean states to help increase their agency even more so you know than simply enabling them to make some statements of concern but maybe not through the multilateral ASEAN forum, but maybe minilaterally. I mean, that would be really interesting. Can I just comment quickly on that? That's a, that's a really good question. You can see it being sort of tested a bit in the region itself. You know, some of the prominent members of Singapore, like Bilahari, the former head of the foreign mm. ministry, have been sort of dangling the idea of ASEAN's centrality and some of the things they've written. But it's a long way ahead and a lot has to happen, but I certainly mm. agree with you that it's worth keeping an eye on. Mm. Just a last quick query about Australia. These events in Myanmar have shone a spotlight 
on defence cooperation agreements between the Australian Defence Force and Myanmar's military. I assume, unless you know, things turn around very quickly, that these kinds of programs are going to become politically untenable for our government to maintain? Uh, I, th- I think so. I, I see that the Defence Department here was explaining the rather small defence cooperation program with Myanmar as being in, intended to teach the Myanmar military how proper military forces behaved in relationship to government, and that clearly hasn't worked very well. So I mm. think symbolically, at least, that will change for a while. Humanitarian aid, at least what there is of it, will be a different issue. Mm. All right, let's move on. China's President Xi Jinping gave a speech remotely to the World Economic Forum at Davos last week. Mm. As regular listeners to this podcast know, we like to pay close attention to speeches as much as possible. So I thought this was a good opportunity to discuss one from the Chinese leader. Here are four quotes that I found notable. One, the strong should not bully the weak. Decisions should not be made by simply showing off strong muscles or waving a big fist, multilateralism should not be used as a pretext for acts of unilateralism. Two, we should respect and accommodate differences, avoiding meddling in other countries' internal affairs and resolve disagreements through consultation and dialogue. History and reality have made it clear time and again that the misguided approach of antagonism and confrontation, be it in the form of Cold War, hot war, trade war, or tech war would eventually hurt all countries' interests and undermine everyone's well-being. Three, it serves no one's interest to use the pandemic as an excuse to reverse globalization and go for seclusion and decoupling. And four, as countries grapple with the pandemic, their economic recoveries are following divergent trajectories and the north-south gap risks further widening and even perpetuation. For developing countries, they are aspiring for more resources and space for development, and they are calling for stronger representation and voice in global economic governance. So, Alan, I don't think we've discussed a a speech from a Chinese leader in the past. So can I sort of step back to begin with and ask, do you pay much attention to Chinese leaders' speeches? And if so, how? How do you read speeches from, or do you read them differently to how you would read a speech from an Australian or an American leader, for example? It's a really interesting question, Darren. I must say that they normally seem too ponderous to read through in, <laughs> in full detail. So I, I guess I read them differently in two ways. First of all, I assume in a way that I don't with all speeches by Australian or even American leaders that they are authoritative. That is that their content has been carefully worked over and that they represent the one Chinese view So that means I'm not trying to parse them for anything they might be saying about uh, internal politics in Beijing, as would at least cross my mind with Biden or Morrison. And, you know, maybe there are sinologists out there who would be able to do that, but that's beyond me. And secondly, because I'm reading them in English, I, I can't judge whether they're effective rhetoric, which is you know how I normally first go through a speech. I think, oh, that sounds really good. And then I look at the content and that's inevitable and maybe win-win situation sounds better in Mandarin. And was there anything notable in particular to you in this speech? Well, several things really, and and you've shown some of them really. There, There are large chunks of it 
which only slightly rewritten could have come from the stump speech of many Australian prime ministers, including mm. the definition of the problems we face and some of the solutions, remain committed to openness and inclusiveness, stay committed to international law and international rules, stay committed to consultation and cooperation instead of conflict and confrontation. Absolutely. The likely response to that will be, but they don't really mean it, it's just propaganda. But it can't be that he meant none of it, because we know that China, not you know the Communist Party, but China as a nation, has real interests in some of those issues. So I think the challenge for Western statecraft in all this is to work out what he meant, what we mean when we say similar things, and where any common ground might be. Now, I was also quite struck by the number of different audiences that a Chinese leader now has to think about when preparing an address like this. In this case, you had, as you went through it, you know, the, the global Davos economic elite who want reassurance about the global world economic prospects and China. You had the United States sending a message at the very beginning of a new administration. You had the Europeans at a critical point in transatlantic relations. And I think, you know, some of the climate change stuff related to that. Mm. And very clearly, you also had the global South. China as a leader of the developing world. And one of your quotes showed that. So this is a difficult juggling act required of any great power. Uh, what, what about you, Darren? To me, analysing speeches of China's top leaders is very difficult, partly because of the repeated use of particular terms and phrases that are loaded with meaning and are part of Beijing's efforts at building discourse power, you know, the power to control language and, and narrative, which is very important to them. But to understand these phrases requires an in-depth study of official documents and articles over a long period of time. Yeah, in a, in a very, very small way, it, it makes one pine for a simple slogan like Tony Abbott's Stop the Boats in the sense that the yeah, policy... Not, not, not so much. <laughs> well, maybe not, but at least in the sense that the policy and the politics behind those three words is very easy to understand. In contrast, many thousands of words have been written just about the phrase community of shared future for mankind, which appeared four times in the speech. Or even a simple phrase like win-win. What does win-win actually mean? So you know, like any political speech, it will have its attempted rhetorical flourishes. And like any political speech, it's going to have its hypocrisies, which of course we here in Australia feel especially acutely, you know, given the, the flat international trade rules that we've been experiencing in recent months. And as you said, Alan, it's going to have multiple intended audiences. You know, as China grows more powerful, you know, it is meeting more resistance, growing resistance. And so it's going to need all the tools of statecraft, including persuasion and rhetoric in order to influence other countries. And so in that vein, I'll link to a newsletter from one of the world's foremost China-Africa experts, Corbus van Staden. And he points out that a speech like that is going to be received very differently in developing countries in the global South than in places like Australia. So we focused on hypocrisy. We viewed it through that lens, but that might be blinding us to some of the other parts of the speech, as we've both discussed, the emphasis on, on global South solidarity that really resonates with those countries. You know, I think my broader point is that 
China's leaders are going to be on the strongest ground when they express such solidarity with other developing countries, recognizing their needs, in particular the desire for economic development, here the, the, the consequences of, of COVID-19 for their economies, and sympathize with some of the developing world's frustrations with the West. I know I've said this before, but this is going to be the grounds for contestation and highlighting hypocrisy might steal the resolve of Australians to resist coercion, but it's not going to persuade the developing world who view that hypocrisy almost as an intrinsic quality of powerful states, including Australia. And to finish off, this brings us back to why I liked Foreign Minister Mahuta's excellent response to Laura Tingle, as I mentioned earlier when she asked about the concern of of China's influence in the Pacific. Anyway, let's move on to our final item, which sort of brings us back a little bit to where we finished last episode on the need or the question about whether Australia needs fresh thinking in its foreign policy. Because one of the areas you mentioned, Alan, that was potentially fertile in this area was Southeast Asia. And perhaps the government was listening, although this would have been long in the making, but we saw the announcement... We saw the announcement recently in the past few weeks of a new comprehensive strategic partnership with Malaysia. Looking at the talking points, this new CSP will focus on economic prosperity, society and technology and defence and regional security. So sort of, you know, I guess this is a a positive step forward in, in building relations with the region, Alan? Look, there's been a, a plethora of comprehensive partnerships and the like recently, and I hope this one with Malaysia does better than its Chinese counterpart. <laughs> yeah, indeed. And, and that's a reminder that labelling things is only a start, not a destination. This came out of a virtual summit that Scott Morrison had with Malaysia's somewhat accidental Prime Minister, Muyidin Yassin, who came through the unlikely middle of a fight between Mahachi and Muhammad and the long-suffering Anwar Ibrahim. And one of the promises we've signed on to is annual leaders meetings, and it will be interesting to see whether we have the same Malaysian leader next time round. Just before this one with Malaysia, we had the Australia-Thailand Strategic Partnership, which was signed back in November. It covered cooperation in defence and security, cyber affairs, anti-money laundering and transnational crime. Neither Malaysia nor Thailand is a model of democracy and human rights. And I I just sort of thinking back to our discussion earlier, Darren, I just wanted to quote something from a piece that our colleague John Blacksland from the ANU's Centre for Strategic and Defence Studies wrote on that particular Thai strategic partnership on the East Asia Forum a few days ago. He, He wrote, Australia has an interest in political reform in Thailand but that interest is moderated by strategic calculus. In essence, Australian leaders seek to remain on good terms with their Thai counterparts as successive Thai governments have been on good terms with their Australian counterparts. In a cool-headed calculation, the Australian government recognises an alignment of interests which motivates desire to maintain as close ties as possible with Thailand despite sporadic domestic political turbulence and difference of views. In turn, after nearly 70 years of formal diplomatic ties, the Thai government appreciates this calculated position. So as we were discussing before, Southeast Asia is difficult terrain. Any comments? 
Yeah, I think you can probably go some way in policy engagement with Southeast Asian countries without butting up against the two hard constraints on Australian foreign policy that I argued are very powerful last episode. One, US-China competition, and two, the problem of money. So I, I certainly support the thickening of relations across all levels of government and indeed civil society while managing political turmoil in these countries as best you can. Because at some point you're going to need to draw upon those relations to solve a difficult problem or a crisis. But yeah, when you hit that problem or crisis, I think that's when these hard constraints are going to come to the fore, especially in the US-China context. And that will create difficult trade-offs, both for Australia and for you know, even more so perhaps for the Southeast Asian countries. So again, I'd support Australia using our capabilities to empower them as, and give them as much agency as possible in resolving these issues. But the interesting question, I think, is do they want it? Do they want more agency to help further their interests in this region? All right, Alan, let's wrap up for today with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What have you got for us this week? Thinking about your comments on the difficulty of finding genuinely different prescriptions for foreign policy, I wanted to recommend a recent Seneca podcast, which was an interview with Michael Swain, Jessica Lee, and Rachel O'Dell about a paper they've written on a new US strategy for East Asia. Now, the paper's product of a new think tank in Washington called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft which argues not for American isolationism, but for much greater use of diplomacy. And it draws its name, of course, from the sixth US president, John Quincy Adams, who famously said, America does not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. Now, I don't agree with all their prescriptions, but one of the really interesting conclusions they draw is that if, as they recommend, the US moves to a military strategy of denial rather than control in East Asia, then Australia and forces based here become a much more important element in the strategic equation. So it's mm. worth listening and pondering that. Interesting. I I saw a, some a, sort of a short piece last year, Alan, that foreshadowed this report, but I haven't read the main report closely. But for me, I found their contributions to the debate quite helpful in helping clarify some of the key points of difference in the China debate generally, because you can't sort of make prescriptions about American foreign policy without also having views about Chinese domestic politics and the relationship between Chinese domestic politics and Chinese foreign policy. And that leads then to the thorny question of China's intentions. And we're actually, I'll, I'll be grappling with some of these questions myself in a forthcoming piece co-authored with Natasha Kassam of the Lowy Institute for Australian Foreign Affairs. So maybe we'll talk about this more into the future. But what I wanted to recommend is a, is a, is a short piece in the sort of the conservative American journal, which is called American Affairs. And it's written by Robert Atkinson and Michael Lind. And it's called National Developmentalism from Forgotten Tradition to New Consensus. And the reason I'm recommending it is it sort of offers a, a pretty coherent view of what an activist industrial policy in the United States would look like. And in contrast that to you know, existing alternative approaches like neoliberalism and, and progressive localism. And it then couples that vision with the implications for US foreign policy. 
you know, one of the key planks of geoeconomic competition into the future is going to be how states structure their economies and the extent to which states think that principles of free trade need to be abrogated because of the combination of major power rivalry plus rapid technological change. So I think this is a conversation that's only just beginning and this is a really good way of framing it. Okay, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing today and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks and talk to you again soon. Thank you.